The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, stop rounding off your long and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 486 with guest Michelle LaRue Bustamante, recorded live Tuesday, August 25th, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Grape City Data Dynamics. Makers of ActiveReports.net, simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET Web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who says... Since Windows Mobile is built in India, does that make it courier? Carl Franklin! Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl, Richard, Michelle, we're all here. Yes, sir. Hey. Hello. Hey. 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 How you doing? How you doing? All right. Did you know Sylvester Stallone revived both Rambo? And Rocky the same year. Yeah. Oh, really? And he looks like crap in both. How you doing? <laughs> well, he's what, 130 now, right? Yeah. Good Lord. Rocky 90s just come out on DVD. <laughs> Take it to the zoo. The retards <laughs> love the zoo. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> well, uh, let's uh, get right into Better Know Framework. All right. Better Know Framework uh, is this little section where I shine a little flashlight on a dark and dingy corner of the .NET framework in hopes that uh, you might find something interesting and go look it up and uh, figure it out your own self because it's not training. I was training. I don't train no more. So today's class is system.resources.tools.stronglytypedresourcebuilder. What? Strongly typed resource builder. All so right, the deal is starting in .NET 2.0, resources, you can load them up the usual way, or you can use a strongly typed resource builder tool to generate a wrapper class around them and give you static read-only properties to get your resources. Isn't that cool? Okay. 
That's it. Really? Well, you also get strongly typed resources with .NET. Well, this is .NET. Right. But, I mean, without a tool. Thank you, Captain Obvious. Built in. Hmm? No, 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 no. This is, yes, yes, but this is the thing that builds them, builds the classes. You can use the uh, resource manager and do get string and get object. Mm-hmm. But this is the guy that gives you those static classes. Right. So there it is. Cool. That was Better Know a Framework. There it goes. That was it. Don't blink. You'll miss it. There you'll miss it. Richard. Yes, sir. Somebody talking to us? Indeed. I pulled up a great email about Iron Python. Hey, guys. Love the show, but I can barely keep up with your frantic release cycle. Seems that when I finish one, two more are waiting in the queue. Just finished listening to the Iron Python episode with Michael Ford. Another great episode. A few comments on my introductory experiences with Iron Python. I've been writing my Iron Python code with the dreaded notepad, which was deservedly mocked during the episode. Initially, I tried Iron Python Studio, but it just wasn't polished enough. However, with Notepad, I miss out on all the great features of a true code editor, namely refactoring support, IntelliSense, and a file explorer. I was pleased to hear Michael mention that there are robust tools to support these features and will definitely be seeking them out. Even better are the tools for syntax checking. The dynamic nature of the language and my lazy fingers caused me much grief when I was doing even the simplest of Iron Python development with Notepad. This has held me back from pursuing the language further, and I can now clearly see that when provided with the proper tools, that you can create massive programs with this dynamic language. Massive. Massive. So thanks for your hard work. Kevin Pullen from Orange, California. Kevin, thank you for your email. Ever since Iron Python, my code has been massive. (laughs) And if you've got questions, concerns, ideas, criticisms, or you just don't like our hair, send us an email, .net rocks at franklins.net. Yes, I'm. So, Michelle. Yo. You really need, do you really need an intro? Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there are new listeners all the time. You're the you're the grand dame of .NET rocks. She is Das Blonde. Das Blonde. Do you remember the first show we did, and you said it was ladies' night? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> That's I'm right. still waiting for my rose. Oh, made of a folded napkin. <laughs> <laughs> a folded napkin that would be nice. A napkin rose. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Those are good tricks to know how to do at a party. Well, anyway, uh, you are. What are you? you? What am I? You are like you're a dynamo. You are you you're are everywhere. A force to be reckoned with. You you are, have to say that because I'm on a show right now. No, no, <laughs> no, no. It's true. Anyone who has ever seen you speak or who has ever listened to you talk on .NET Rocks, you just uh, you you're a font of information. And it's not the dirty jokes. Uh, well, that's just part of it. It's not just mm-hmm. the dirty jokes. No, it's not just that. You yeah. can take the girl out of Toronto, but you can't take Toronto out of the girl. There you go. <laughs> and also relevantly is this, I mean, not only your Microsoft regional director, but also wasn't it BEA gave you some equivalent nomination? Well, that would be quite irrelevant at the moment since BEA is no longer. But, um, yeah, I used to be a BEA regional, a BEA technical director, they called it. Ah. <clears throat> that was because for a period of time I was... Uh, uh, doing quite a lot of Java, and it was mostly in the beginnings of the WS Star days, right, when mm-hmm. things didn't interop so well. And so I was involved in a lot of interop events with other people that knew Java better than me, and we would make our code work together right, with .NET. 
uh, and those were in the pre-WCF days even, but it bled into WCF as well, of course. So, yeah. so in those days, they were really hot at BEA of having people that knew, you know, how to make the platforms talk. Right. So they gave us a little anointment, you know, uh, as a knighthood, if you will, right? But, uh, yeah, that's gone now because, of course, Oracle owns them, so... And all gone. Bye bye. Is if there's anyone listening who doesn't know, you know, and, and can't go back into the catalog and listen to the stuff you talk about, you, um, you, you, geez, you started out programming and talking about animation. You wrote a book on animation. Oh, that's right. Well, that's when we first met. You that's wrote right. my foreword for my the animation book. Good Lord. Lobos many years ago, which was cool. It was all, uh, you know, raster based animation bitmaps. It was basically C plus plus for VB. Right. Because I only use VB for the shell and everything else was C++. Yep. Yeah. Back in the day when you couldn't do anything with VB because it was just VB6, right? Right. And then you got into communications and and then the whole web services thing. You really owned that space for a long, long time. And the WS Star stuff. And and you got into also uh, uh, security in terms of like identity, right? Mm-hmm. Well, you know what's funny, though? With all these subjects, I have to say, you never really feel like you know it all. You can't. No. It's impossible. There is so many things. Every time I turn a corner, you know, a customer needs this scenario or that scenario, and it's a little bit special. So you still have to go back, look at the tools you have, you know, maybe finagle some extensibility to make it work a certain way. And these are things you can't possibly know until you encounter them. So what I'm finding, and I think this has always been the case with developers, is that it's more important that you know how to find the answers and troubleshoot and figure things out, right, and understand the core than it is to, I guess, even have a vast knowledge across every topic. Um, That's right. Because you just you need to di- you need to be able to discover answers, right? Yeah. Well, as soon as you have the knowledge, it's obsolete. So. Yeah. Exactly. So, and it's moving at such a phenomenal pace at this point that, you know, even though I make it my job to sort of know how things mesh together in an architectural viewpoint, I'm I'm starting to have very serious trouble keeping up at this point. You know, I now have to pick, cherry pick, you know, the things I will talk about when I'm discussing all the technologies and how, you know, how we would apply each one, be it database, uh, Windows web, you know, back-end architecture, uh, identity, et cetera, because there's just, there's too many things. There's too many things. And SOA and WCF and all these other acronyms. You know what? The other day, acronym uh, story for you. Uh, at the PDC, I'm going to be giving a tutorial, um, which maybe we'll talk a little bit about the uh, what I fondly call the surviving the avalanche. But um, basically, the guy that, that hired me to do it emailed me and said, you know, I need you to come up with uh, an, a Microsoft FTE to, to be at the, at the tutorial and, and help out. And, you know, I emailed this friend of mine who doesn't work for Microsoft saying, hey, do you want to be my uh, subject matter expert? And and then I get an email back with the, from from the guy who hired me saying, "Is he an FTE?" I'm like, you know what? I'm sorry, but what the hell is an FTE? <laughs> <laughs> I can't I cannot keep any more acronyms in my head. I'm seriously like they're starting to like push at the bottom because more is coming in the top, and it's just full time employee, right? I just completely spaced. I had no idea what I was. That's doing. funny. It's too many TLAs. Yeah. Too many There's TLAs. Way too many. Yeah, yeah. You need to have a dictionary by you. Uh, what was your last book? Learning WCF. I, I updated it a couple times, actually, for the 2008 stack. But, um, yeah. And it wasn't a light read, either. How many pages? Mm, 
I want to say 600. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that was a lot of work. I'm doing another one now, too. <laughs> what? So On what? I'm Well, the next gen of WCF, oh, right? Oh, so, oh, okay. <clears throat> I can't resist. Yeah. Yeah, this is a form what? of brain damage, Michelle. I know. That you keep doing yeah. this. But you know what? Either that, or I'd have to write a whole new book from scratch on a different subject, right? Like maybe a right. cloud computing book or something. And I thought, you know, I don't know if I have time to do that right now. So let's just count the things I'm working on. I don't think I can handle it. Well, and you've been working so, somewhat with this research project, Avalanche, right? Avalanche, as we call it. Yeah. So, so think about, actually, take yourself back to like when .NET first came out. And this would be funny to, to see what you say about this. So I used to do sessions, and you as well, I'm sure, at conferences about the core .NET, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. language-specific things, assemblies, putting assemblies in the GAC, versioning, publisher policies, click ones. When the click ones came out, oh, my God, all the hype around, you know, how do I um, uh, calculate the security for the app with click ones? And they had the tool, which, you know, turns out to be useless and... Um, but all these things we thought were so, so important, and you would do these talks that were like, you know, super detailed, right, about just everything down to the assemblies. And now, do you see anyone doing talks on that anymore? Yeah, I do once in a while, and I like, find them well attended. I do stuff on um, – uh, I do a ta- I still do a talk on memory management, on garbage collection and all that stuff, and I usually yeah. get a pretty good crowd. That's another good example. Yeah, but, I mean, you don't see a lot of that, though, no, at you don't. conferences. You really don't. You just see maybe a handful, and that's probably why they are so well attended, right? So the poor beginner is just getting lost in the shuffle. Like, how do you get started and jump from zero to, okay, how do I choose the right data access technology? How do I choose the right architecture for WCF, Windows, Web, you know, cloud, where does cloud fit, identity, which type of security model do I need? You know, how do you jump to all that when you don't even know the core, how does .NET work, like code access security and permission demands and, you know, versioning and should I even version? So I started making this list of things that I used to think were really important and they're just not anymore to me. Not that they aren't to somebody, but certainly not to me. You know, like, for example, where we used to go through all the details of, you know, oh, but if you're going to version your assemblies, you absolutely have to version not just the file, but also the assembly, and then you have to install a publisher policy in the GAC that will make sure that everybody gets the new version. And, I mean, seriously, major complications, right, on your deployment of an updated app, right? Sure. And then come to realize that, for example, even Microsoft doesn't do that, so... Why would they, right? I mean, when it's a new version, they do it, but that's because they've got a new version and you explicitly install it. But any patches, service packs, you notice they don't version the assembly. They version the file. Hmm. Because otherwise they wouldn't be able to get it in and have all of our code work. It would be impossible. It would be a disaster. We did a talk at DevLink, uh, a panel discussion on software complexity. And Mm -hmm. now that I think about it, I'm surprised that nobody caught on to this, which is you're right. There, there isn't a lot of stuff out there about the basics because, you know, all the people who are speakers sort of learned all that stuff and regurgitated it already. Right. They did you it know. when it was first coming out. So now right. all the same speakers, there's no new speakers on that stuff. And, and none of us really probably want to, you know, yeah. necessarily offer a talk on all that stuff because we kind of it's just like know what school. we know and yeah. we want to do new stuff. Right. Well, and the conferences themselves push us to always do the latest and greatest, and you can't right. use your old talks anymore. Right. 
Yeah, I think that's going to change. I think that we're going to see um, sort of a revisiting of .NET core fundamentals in terms of popularity of any trainings, popularity of, uh, of even having a track, you know, at, a, at conferences in order to inspire the newbies to actually want to come because, again, what's the advantage of going to a conference unless you can get the stuff you need regurgitated in a way that's nice and, and tight and concise and you don't have to go to a class for like three months to get it, right? Well, yeah, and in, in, a, in a form, I just think we're alienating new developers now that because .NET is mature, you know, at 3.5, mm-hmm. you just can't get in the door. Well, and I wonder, you know, I'm sure there's textbooks, you know, books that have been written that cover these things, but it feels like if you're not doing it in sort of, you know, the live conferences and interviews and whatever, you know, then people maybe don't think about it, right, as much. There's not as much momentum or hype about just the platform itself because now it's all about, oh, look at all these things we can do with it, and that can just look overwhelming, right? Oh, definitely. Well, Instead in, in, of just, oh, PHP, cool. But also in reference to your, your avalanche thought here is that it doesn't matter even if you are experienced, pick a technology, pick a data access method. Like, good luck. We're buried. I know. I know. It's really sick. It's sick, but it's good, right? I mean, it's good that we have choices. It's good that we have all these things we can do with the platform. Um, and I don't, I don't think there's been any mistakes made in that sense. Um, but I just think, I just think that there are going to be people out there, even at our level, that are like, okay, which should I choose? Like, I do some talks, like uh, a tech ed, I did the talk on data access technologies and sort of a strategic comparison. And it's kind of funny, you know, I, I did this talk from the architect's perspective. I don't go deep in entity framework, right? I go deep enough to know how it applies and when my customers should look at it. And I talk enough to the product team and or other people I know that are really deep experts that I know when I should recommend it or not. But I'm not going to be the one that's, you know, helping you optimize it, right? Um, And the same thing goes for, like, you know, link to SQL as another choice, et cetera. So I did this talk from that perspective, and and it was really, really, really well attended. So I was really surprised, actually, happily, how many people. And and even now, people have emailed me saying, can you deliver that again, da-da-da-da-da. So obviously, people are really hungry for that type of session, right, that that brings together choices and helps you understand them. Um, And it's so funny because, I mean, the majority of the people in the room, I think, were really excited about the talk. And, of course, there has to be like that one guy, right, or a girl or whoever it was, someone, one person put on the eval because I put my hand up and I said, I'm an architect, right? And then I went on to the spiel of the whole talk and then one of the guys in the back of the room, I guess, at some point asked me a question I didn't know the answer to, which went a little deeper in Entity Framework. And I put my hand up and I said, I'm an architect. (laughs) And everybody else laughed, right? Because obviously, I mean, I'm not there. I'm not expecting to be able to answer all those detailed questions, right? That's not what I'm there for. Right. And some guy wrote on the uh, on the evals. She hid behind, you know, her "I'm an architect" to explain oh, not on. knowing things or whatever. And I was <laughs> like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> right now. You tell me somebody that knows all of those details. You know what I mean? Like, you can't win. Anyway, it was pretty funny. There is an archetypical cranky uh, session attendee, though. You oh, know for that. sure. Yeah. Well, they maybe wanted an answer and you know didn't get it or something. Who yeah. knows? Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's good times. I mean, those types of sessions are really fun to deliver, right? Because you, you're not 
you know, saying you know it all. You're saying, look, I've had to think about these things too, right? I want to help you think about it. How do I get to the point of, I know there are all, all these choices, at least which one looks the most interesting to me based on what I need. And then somebody's got to go and dive deeper, right? Obviously, you need that, that uh, expertise in one of those five choices. So, you know, okay, have at it. Now you've, you can make a decision, educate it, right? Do you think besides the lack of uh, sort of entry-level information, Oh, I won't say entry level, just beginner information about .NET. Do you think that it's any more or less approachable these days in terms of You know what it is? Complexity? It's not front and center. I think that's how I, that's the sense I get is that there's plenty of content out there, but content gets in front of your face when people are actively publishing on it, not when, oh, you know, that there's that, that, you know, book written on .NET back five years ago that just still rocks for .NET 2. Yeah. So read that first. And then you can come and read all the ASP.NET Pro and Code and, and MSDN Magazine articles and, and other publications, right? So I think that the real problem is that it's not front and center. We need probably magazines to still be publishing on core because that's what brings it in front of people. And that's what makes people think about it and realize, oh, there is somebody out there that cares about me, the .NET person that just started. Magazines yeah. still publishing on core stuff. Man, I, yeah, that's oh, a, I mean, that, maybe not printed magazines, right? Because that's obviously a, a difficult thing yeah. uh, in terms of the monetary uh, right. side of it. But I think just in general, right? Stuff needs to be blogged about more. Stuff needs to be still Communicated published. on. But I, I yeah. also think we've hit this point where we're paralyzed by the choices. There's too many. Too many. I, I've been I've just been rereading a book. Uh, uh, Barry Schwartz put a book called a, a few years ago called The Paradox of Choice, and it was the reason I reread it is I couldn't remember this one anecdote. I'll give it to you. Tell me what your reaction is to it. Grocery store chain is carrying a line of jams, twenty four jams in the line, and so on a Saturday they put out six of them for people to taste. And if you taste one of the jams, they give you a dollar off coupon. And their results at the end of the day is that the average person that tastes a jam tastes four of the jams and takes the dollar off coupon. And about 30% of the time, they buy a jam. Hmm. So pretty successful, you know, little test. The following week, they put out all 24 jams. You can taste any one you want. And... People go up and they taste these jams. And again, they still only taste about four of them because let's face it, how many, how much jam can you taste? They get the dollar off coupon, but only 3% of them buy jam this time. And the only difference mm. between the two tests was in one, you showed six choices and in the other, mm -hmm. you showed 24. Too many choices people turn off. They unplug. And I'm wondering if we're there with these technologies coming out of Microsoft. There's so many choices we don't want to choose. That could be part of it. Well, think about it. I mean, the cost for choosing wrong is, has never been higher. Oh, my God. Yeah, imagine you go down one road and your developers have to get expertise in, you know, each of those disciplines you choose. So right. Silverlight and WPF being a common scenario, right? Am I going to yeah. go one or the other? And things are heading in such a direction. It looks like Silverlight would be the long-term winner. But obviously, what we hope is that you can use that code in both places, both ways. But I've got customers trying to make that decision, and they're like, I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> and, it, and it's easier to just postpone, especially in the technology field where you know this is going to change anyway. Or just do what you know. Instead of postponing, people will do what they know. Yeah. See, that's the other side is that people will stop adopting new 
in general and just say, you know what, this stuff works. I've got this stuff and it's founded on, you know, data readers instead of linked SQL and entity framework. It's founded on ASP.NET and I've thrown in a couple of Ajax things and it's looking good. Um, and it becomes business investment to go any further, right? Well, yeah, and it's, it's .NET 2.0 and Studio 2005. I yeah. just amazed at how many folks are totally content right there. None of the stuff that's shipped in the past three years has motivated them to move. Yeah, and then and then actually, I hate to say it because WCF is one of my favorite things in the world, but um, even there, you know, because WCF solves so many problems, it can appear to be a lot more complex on the front end. Uh, and so when you're used to doing Azimax, which is super, super easy, and of course doesn't have any fancy security mechanisms around it. It's just a web service. It's just an endpoint that you send a SOAP message to and you secure it with SSL and maybe username, password, entering to the, the you know, over, over transport or something right. like that, right? So you're not using all the fancy WS star there. And people sometimes now ask me the question, why should I go to WCF? Like, what do I really need anymore is their question. You know, why? Why should I do that? Another problem, Michelle, related to this, I think, and if we're just talking about the overwhelmingness of information, is that when the good stuff is uh, – or the, or let me just say the quality of content is not so easy to discern when they're all just sort of available at your fingertips. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? So you could wade through a bunch of – stuff that is half pertinent to you, you know, and then you see something that is and, you know, well, it's, it's, it's more difficult to discern it because it's, because it's so commonplace to see. Are you talking about, you know, blog entries? Yeah, just, blog entries. You know, the amount of publishing in general? Right. Something that's well written, but might not be the right thing for you. You know, some, some an article about a technology that's well written but mm-hmm. but it might be just not not quite what you need but you might get you know you might get more attracted to the to to using that technology after reading this article whereas there could be something else that is more uh, that fits exactly what you need but not as well written i mean i i don't know what i'm trying to say i'm trying to say it's it's getting more difficult to discern the quality information from the non-quality information well, and some of that's just up to the author, too, right, how they want to position a thing. I mean, even if you look at federated security scenarios just as one topic, you know, there's a lot of different ways one can approach that yeah. related to what kind of claims model you need. And, and not everybody agrees on the best way to do that either, um, and nor do they have to. Uh, the point is that there's a, a utility underneath that does a thing, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, we want to somehow fit on top of that for our specific scenario, um, you know, what are the right ways to, to authorize access. And um, it makes it hard for people because if they don't have experience with the technology itself, then they don't really know how to model it. And even though it's getting easier to do, it still seems like it's a lot to know. Hmm. You know? Um, yeah. And that's just one subject, right? So, you know, I think that one of the reasons that REST started to become more popular back, you know, let's say, I don't even know when it started, but let's say a year and a half ago as a as a baseline for when momentum really seemed to pick up at Microsoft. 
And so that's what I'm gauging as popularity is increasing because it was already popular in other communities, right? Um, so why did that happen? And I, I think really the momentum behind, you know, WS Star becoming more complicated, there's too many standards, there's too many, you know, choices, there's, there's too many protocols to understand, there's too many interop issues, which really is not necessarily true now that they've evolved, but it was the case a few years ago, right, still evolving. Um, and I think people just said, you know what, all I want is an endpoint where I can send a message. Let's get back to basics. Yeah, focus Which on what's exactly important. what we were doing back in 2000 or even 1999 when SOAP first, first came out. It was rare to see it adopted. I mean, I worked in the insurance space, and, and we were building 24-7 operations that needed to receive XML data from different systems. So it was the classic EDI scenario. And sometimes people sent us, you know, an Excel spreadsheet that we had to parse and scrub and then put into our system. And other times they sent us XML based on a, uh, uh, you know, a, a schema of sorts, right, DTD. Uh, and sometimes they sent us flat files, and the list goes on. We took the data any way we could get it. We couldn't tell them, hey, use SOAP, it's cool, and by the way, that's the only way you can talk to us. No, no, no. We had to say, hey, how do you want us to send the data? We want your money. We need your business. And we had to, you know, sort of turn around and say, hey, you know, send it to me however you want, and we'll, we'll make it happen. Um, and so back in those days, SOAP wasn't so popular, but it was fairly simple. I mean, you, you, you called the developer. You said, look, I, I need you to send me the data. Here's the DTD. Uh, and they'd say, oh, by the way, we're not going to validate it, so you validate it at your end if the data is correct or not. You know, they didn't even want to do that, right? You take the data any way you can get it. And, uh, and it worked. It was just an HTTP endpoint. Send me some data, and I'll deal with it. And I think people want wanted when REST started picking up to get back to that initially, right? Just HTTP. Keep it simple. Only REST adds some value with the whole URI addressable um, resource pattern where it's, you know, get, put, post, delete and and makes it a little bit more intuitive, right, and how I'm interacting with that set of resources. Well, it's also the tool for the job. It's a simpler tool for a uh-huh. simpler job, right? Uh-huh. Right, but it's an act, it's sort of, you know, WCF has always been able to do it, but it inherently is really soap based. So, right. all the, all the momentum came, you know, later in the 3.5 release, right, for Microsoft to right. make it possible and make it easier to do rest. And, mm-hmm. and obviously that investment is continuing because 4.0 is going to include more of the rest starter kit. Mm-hmm. And so the momentum is going to continue. But the funny thing is, now, people in the REST community, not all, but some, are now looking for, well, how can I do, you know, federated security with REST? Or how right. can I do, <laughs> you know, um, you know, how can I generate a proxy? Or yeah. And so now we're getting back to SOAP again, right? We're getting back to the same trend that happened. So I, I think it's going to be interesting to see how complicated REST becomes. Well, that's silly, um, because we already have tools and standards to do that stuff. Right. And then all you're left with when you compare REST and SOAP at that point is that the URI addressable pattern, yes, is very, you know, clean and easy to understand and follow and somewhat self-discoverable depending on how you publish your services um, because you, you can, you know, obviously link to, you know, build a website that has li- literally links to your resources, right? Um, although I don't think that's generally how we use 
REST services. Um, programmatically, we wouldn't see the link, right? It would just be right. an endpoint like a SOAP service provides, only it's a resource endpoint instead of a method we call. Right. RPC. So, anyway, it's kind of interesting. I mean, it's like, I think the, the goal has always been, let's get back to simplicity. Right. This is too complicated. And I don't argue that because you know what? At the end of the day, what we would call like good enough security would be a web service hosted over HTTP, over SSL, with a username and password being passed either in the message or as part of the transport. And you know what? There's plenty of people out there that consider that, quote-unquote, good enough security. So we can talk till you know, the end of today about all the different standards on securing things with the message and, you know, how securing the message will help you secure it all the way through a router or some sort of other uh, intermediary. But bottom line is most people don't have that problem. They just want to get their application up and running in this economy and, and, yeah. and be done. So we need, obviously, ways to simplify how to use the right technology so that they will use the right one if it's valuable to them. Because, for example, I think with federated security, claims-based security models are really valuable and useful because they get you away from that whole role-based uh, fixation where, you know, you, you, what if you need to change your roles? What if roles are variants based on who your partners are or uh, which departments use the service, right? Uh, you don't want to be tied to roles. You want to be tied to something more granular like a permission, right? Yeah. And so I find yeah. a lot of my customers, it's not even about federation across businesses. It's about just getting away from roles and introducing granular claims in a model that's built in. And thankfully, we now have a built-in model, which we didn't have before. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Telerik, without whose support this show surely would not exist. Our friends at Telerik are working full steam. They've just released the Q2 volume of the Telerik Premium Collection for .NET, which is their biggest release yet. Packed with new things, it'll surely excite anyone who has anything to do with .NET development. Let's start with Silverlight and the introduction of the first commercial 3D chart on the market. It is developed as True Vector 3D, which guarantees swift performance and rich capabilities like rotation, animations, etc., Another major announcement is the Telerik Silverlight Scheduler, which is packed with tons of features, even in the first version. Telerik's flagship, RAD Controls for ASP.NET AJAX, grows not only with four new controls, but also with new productivity tools. Take the new Visual Style Builder, an online application that allows you to visually modify skins or design new ones with point and click. And if that's not enough, they've added a completely new product, a free testing framework powered by Art of Test for automating Ajax and Silverlight-rich Internet applications. Since I'm short on time here, I can't enumerate all the new features and enhancements in the Telerik Reporting, Open Access ORM, and their Windows Forms products, so I'll leave it for you to check them out at Telerik.com. And don't forget to say thank you for supporting .NET Rocks. Well, and it does seem like Microsoft is finally actually using the claims-based model in some of their own technology. I mean, that to me is your best endorsement that this thing's actually going to survive. Oh, yeah. No, there's no question in my mind that it's going to survive. I'm just thinking back to code access security. My reaction when I saw that was, as soon as I see a Microsoft app with that in it, I'll believe. 
Now, which part of code access security? Because that's an interesting topic. I've, I've talked to a few people who said, I mean, a lot of people say they've never used a permission demand. Have you guys used a permission demand? I, you know, code access security for me is something that I learned so that I could teach it. And I, when, I, when I asked how many people have a need for this, maybe one hand went up. When I ask a group of people how many people have implemented it, no hands. Yeah. It's just one of those really difficult things to do that people find other ways to get around, I think. But that's the funny thing. It, it's not really that difficult if you think of it this way. So, and, and that's where it comes down to education and, and how easy do people make it to find the information. Because all it is is a request comes into ASP.NET or, or Azimex Web Service or WCF Service Call, and you authenticate it somehow. Okay, so using either of those technologies, there's a way to authenticate either with a Windows credential or a username password or something. And no matter what of those scenarios, you're going to have in the thread for the request a security principle. So it's amazing to me how many people I talk to that don't know that, hey, by the way, the way .NET works is there's a security principle usually attached to the request thread. And that principle is the thing you can ask, hey, are you in this role? Are you in that role? And use that information, obviously, to authorize access. The question is, where do you authorize? And before web services, we were trying to sell code access security as a way to protect access to your high-level, you know, um, top-end API assembly. So in your methods, you would restrict you know, you have to be an admin to call these operations. Well, that, I think, never sold. I think that's right. part of the problem. The days when we were talking about code access security were the days that, you know, we were putting it in a place that nobody really cared to spend the time because they were authorizing in different ways, using enterprise services or something like that. But the truth is it's extremely valuable at the operation level for a service or at the operation level of a web method if you're using Asimax. And it's used everywhere in ASP.NET if you use the the security controls, right? Is in role is like, you know, how all those work. So to restrict, you know, UI parts and stuff like that. Hmm. Yeah. So it's already built in. It's just people don't know it's there. Well, I also just think that, you know, the simplicity of implementation is one thing, but security in developer <laughs> developers hate security because it's I know. it's ultimately a a, a a constraint they have to put on themselves, and it's a bear to develop with security constraints, not let alone developing for security constraints. So uh, it's always just been a, a pro. I think it's been a developer sore spot. Yeah, yeah, you got a good point. It's it's definitely uh, it's definitely something that again. This comes back to the avalanche, right? There are so many disciplines we need to know now, right? I need to know my core.NET languages and sort of the language features that I can leverage to be a better developer, right? You know, um, all the stuff that came out with .NET 3.5, good things to know, right? Like automatic properties and Lambda making uh, anonymous methods easier and just things that shorten the amount of code you write, but you got to invest the time to keep up to speed with that stuff. And then you've got the platform stuff. So, okay, data technologies are evolving. How do I, how do I, you know, settle on a technique that's best for me? Um, Windows technologies with 
Windows Forms and WPF. You know, are we ready to move to WPF? That seems to be a momentum now. But then WPF or Silverlight, which do I choose? And, you know, and then you dive into web and you've got Ajax, Silverlight, ASP.NET, MVC, the list goes on. And then you get to things like WCF or, or even just server-side development in any form, and you're starting to deal with the security, you know, options. And so there's just too many. Each of those sections requires a little time to make a choice before you dive in, I think. So I'm just one opinion, right? I do a tutorial on that, but, you know, I have my opinions on based on my experience, and obviously I'm sure many people may have different opinions slightly, but, you know, you need to at least get educated and then make your own opinion. I suppose that's the way to go. I do think that most people just see security as an obstacle getting work done, and the more complex it is, the worse it is. Yeah, I mean, if you can work off of that security principle concept, though, and just say, look, I don't care how you authenticate. This this is the beautiful thing about, you know, claims-based security models and federated security is that you can actually decouple how authentication happened completely from the app. And that's, you know, the stepping stone to then later being able to do full-blown federation. But I always tend to talk about federated security in this way. At least separate your services, your applications, and so forth from how did I authenticate. Don't care if it was a Windows credential, certificate, username, password, or a token from another service. doesn't matter to me. Whatever, however you authenticated over there somewhere, all I want is you to send me a security token that carries the claims that will help me authorize access. Hmm. So I'm expecting you to get that token from my trusted security token service, and you can authenticate over there, however, and I'll let the security people in my company decide on that model and what that needs to look like, and all we're going to care about is that I need these claims to give you access to this operation or that functionality. And anytime I have a situation where I'm building code so that IT folks can administer it at a, at a granular level like that, I find it really folks struggle to be successful there. But this is not IT folks, really, necessarily. It doesn't have to be. I mean, the developers are still involved. I suppose if you're talking um, Geneva Server, then, yeah, that's like Active Directory AD. Um, I'm more in the sense of giving that guy the rights to do that particular task so that he can get the token he needs. Mm-hmm. Getting all those things defined well enough that... that a non-developer can get the permissions to the right person. That's very tricky stuff. So that a non-developer can get permissions to the right person. Yeah, could, yeah I'm thinking, you, know, you were describing, I mm-hmm. as a developer, all I worry about is, uh, do I have the claim to allow this guy to access the code? Now you've got to make sure you have the mechanism so that somebody who's not a developer can give that claim to that user. I'm, I'm not sure if I'm... Like, I guess I'm, I'm wondering where you're coming from there because what I'm talking about is not that the developer needs the rights. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm exactly right. right. The developer yeah. doesn't need the rights. I'm talking yeah. about the, the guy who does need the rights, who's neither the developer or the person who can actually grant rights. Like, he has to ask the right question, and the IT guy has to know what the heck he was talking about to give him the privileges he needs. Right, so what you're saying really is that there's the, a distinction between I authenticated somewhere and I got these rights granted because I was this person. 
So there's a distinction between authentication and authorization, obviously, and the way that works in federated security scenarios is, is let's say Geneva Server is my Active Directory, um, you know, system of record for all the users, and that's where the user's going to log in. Right. So they're going to provide their Windows credential because they're on the domain, whatever, and, you know, when they get authenticated, they're going to get issued a token, let's say, that says, okay, you are Michelle. And these are your roles in Active Directory. And then that token is going to come over to the application that the developer is building, but not to the application yet. It's going to go to the security token service, let's say, at the application, which would be my, what we call, let's say, a, a relying party security token service. Relying party meaning the application that depends on the claims. So you would actually maybe have a custom STS implementation built with the Windows Identity Foundation that converts that Windows user. So now we know you were authenticated as a Windows user, and we're going to just say, oh, this user gets these claims, and this user gets those claims. So the developer would still be some developer, maybe not the person building the services, would be responsible for, you know, obviously um, writing the code that calls the database that gets the claims for the authenticated user in terms of what the application needs those claims to look like, as opposed to your authentication claims, which is from the identity provider. So AD could be your identity provider, but your application still has a claims transformer of sorts. Yeah, you know what? This stuff is complicated. Like, now I'm back to this, the original question <laughs> here, which is, all right, you've now said inside your app, I need these tokens to be able to do this. But not in the app. Let's call it a separate service. Well, the service is the thing that's actually granting the token, but isn't it as, as a developer, aren't I the guy who says, do I have a token to be allowed to do this? Mm, you're saying, how do I grant the claims? Yeah, I'm, I'm asking, uh, here I am as the programmer, and I've been told only certain people are going to be allowed to do this particular task. Not people. Only certain claims. You're going to expect the claim. I'm looking at the document, right? I'm looking at the specification that was written mm -hmm. to me by a human, and he doesn't mm -hmm. know what the hell claims are. He says, only certain people are allowed to do this task. Okay. It's up to me to translate that into claims. But okay. we get back to the original issue here, which is, all right, here's a user. I, I've now, I'm, I believe Michelle, and I'm going to do this federated security thing, and I need claims and tokens, and so now I've got to add some code to my app that's going to check to see, is this claim in place so that I can do this in this scenario, right? And I'm okay with that. Right. Well, it's no different than roles, though. Think, of, think about roles. You would still have to do that, right? So the same thing you would have to do as a developer, restricting based on a role, you're going to do restricting based on a claim. Right. But instead of being more um, course where admin, user, guest, partner are your roles, it's going to be more like, am I allowed to create, read, update, delete, send email, build documents, get reports? You know, you, you make the list of things my system needs to be able to do. Right. And, and then those things become your claims, let's say. That's one way to go, right? This is not the only claims model possible, but it's a possible claims model if you're doing permissions, for example, like this. And then you might still have roles in your system that you sort of use as a hint to grant the claims. But instead of, you know, having your code coupled to the role, 
so that the role can evolve and change and maybe new roles be created and you don't have to update your code ever again. All you care about is, did that user get authenticated, number one? Number two, did that authenticated user get the claims, not the roles, but the claims based on, say, their role in the system over there at my security token service? So you've got an identity provider token service which authenticates the user, and then you've got a relying party Mm, security token service that maps, let's say, the authenticated user by their name or some unique ID uh, to the correct claims. And then your service, you as the developer building the service, only cares about, hey, uh, do you have this claim? So it's almost like instead of an is-enroll call, think of it logically like a has-claim call. Right. And you're not having to do anything at the services or at the application. Geneva Framework, now called Windows Identity Foundation, will install a security principle in your thread from that token and put the claims there ready and, and able to use. And you can use classic .NET role-based security, if you want, to do the is-enroll check, which is really an do-you-have-a-claim check. So your code becomes super simple. I, I'm Believe it or not, as complicated as that sounds, I get that. No, I get right? it. Sure. The is role. The the part that I jumped on, and I get it, threw my IT hat on here, is when I have to go define all these claims, mm-hmm. I've got to involve the IT guys in it, which means I really have to give them some kind of tool to have access to see what those claims are and see how to apply them. So I'm going to ask you the question, why does the IT necessarily uh, have to be involved in that? Because they grant rights to the users. They create their accounts and they uh-huh. give, put them in the roles. That's if you're doing it all in AD, for example. Well, AD is certainly one way, but what's the alternative? The alternative being, you know, SQL Server, where you've got usernames or user IDs mapped to a set of claims. Well, ultimately, there has to be an authority who says this, you know, users of this code or hmm. users of this application need to be able to do this, this, and that, hmm. and will grant... We will grant these claims to these these roles and these claims to these roles and those. Isn't that a, doesn't that fall within the realm of an IT administrator? Well, so I have a vision in my mind here of a couple scenarios. One is where let's say, and remember that the proxy manages all this, so it's kind of hidden even from the client developer. So let's say I have a service WCF. I make a federated endpoint, and I say. I want you to get tokens from my relying party STS, so my application security token service, okay? But what I'm also going to do is um, indicate that I will be authenticated at the Active Directory identity provider first. Now, that's all part of the binding, let's say, okay? And I'm not going to go into details, but Generally speaking, what the client application developer will do is generate a proxy. They'll get a proxy that's federated. The federated endpoint will um, will basically, mm, during the service util proxy generation process, it will go and discover the chain of STSs that need to be called. So it'll know what to do. So what it'll do is the proxy will make the first call to the identity provider, Active Directory, passing the Windows credential. That will be the one that the IT people are administering, which has your AD behind it and your roles, let's say. You'll get a token from there that will just say basically, okay, your username is Michelle. I've authenticated that, or I've, you know, I've, I've, I'm the issuer of this claim that says you really were Michelle, right? And I'm going to have a token that carries that claim over to the relying party STS, and so the proxy will then make a call there and pass this token from AD. Okay, 
And now the relying party STS is maybe built with Windows Identity Foundation. So that one will transform my Michelle claim, which says, hey, uh, okay, I got a token from that Active Directory service, so I know I can trust the token. I know you are Michelle. And I have a database here that says Michelle gets create, read, update, delete rights. So we're going to issue you a new token from us that says you have those rights. And then that token goes back to the proxy, and then the proxy forwards that to the actual service call. So, and from there, they establish a session, and they don't have to go back and forth and back and forth, right? So, so the point is that IT is probably managing the Active Directory store in that scenario. Yeah. But the application developers are probably building the custom security token service to handle the transformation part. So they've got their own database for granting the claims based on the user. But it's still the IT guys who are granting the privileges for the update-delete privileges for Michelle. So they have, I mean, they've got to use some kind of tool that assigns those claims to that user. If you're not using a custom database, if it's going to be claims granted from Geneva Server, then yes, they would have to do that. Okay, but otherwise, it's I'm now convincing IT people to use my app as a developer to assign those rights. Well, again, what kind of app are we building? Are we building an app that we expose to the Internet, that basically we have our own custom database of users that we create and we allow people to administer as part of the application management? Or are we talking about more of an enterprise AD-type um, application that is used behind the firewall where all the users are actually granted rights based on their, you know, uh, their Windows credential, in which case, yes, IT is managing that. In which case, we probably wouldn't do the transformation that I talked about. We would just have Geneva Server, and Geneva Server would grant the claims, and, and then, yes, you would be right. The IT people would probably be managing that. Yeah. So it depends what type of application you're building. If it's if it's outward-facing where you're letting people administer their user accounts and, and the right claims uh, through some friendly UI, and it's not really you doing that and fixing it as part of AD. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, I'm just wondering why you would do this if you weren't going to allow non-developers to control the claims process. Like, that's the main, to me, well, the main advantage But remember, here. it doesn't have to be anything more. I mean, if, if all you're looking for is a basic role-based security, right? then I guess you could still do that model and still have Geneva Server being, you know, ADFS v2, right, the, the new release, um, be your identity provider, in which case you may just grant the roles as the claims. I mean, you could still do that. Yeah, but if I, as soon as I do that, why am I bothering any of this? I'll just go back because to is in Because then it gives role. you the flexibility to have other federated partners and, and have that relationship be built without you having to, as a developer, building the application care. Because at that point, you've decoupled. You don't have a Windows endpoint at your service that just receives a Windows credential. You're receiving claims from the Geneva server, and you can easily update that Geneva server to maybe trust other federated partners from other domains or something like that, and you wouldn't have to know because you would still be getting claims from there. So it decouples you and gives you that flexibility. Think about single sign-on. Think about the big problems people in IT have with managing user provisioning and deprovisioning across all the applications in the enterprise and, and how much simpler that would be if you could have trust between domains where users log into their own domain but yet can be granted rights to an application from another domain. Now that's classic federation. That's the real reason, you know, people talk about federation being valuable, in fact, is to save the pain of IT. Yeah. 
because because you're managing users and duplicating users across all these applications because you don't have a way to federate, right? Although Active Directory has its own federation services available to it, right? You are able to pass claims between domains. You mean it's using Kerberos? Yeah, it's just limited. You know, we, we, we can't do it in a massive scale. Right. So it's not, I guess the new tools make, take away that, right? The limited value. Right now we have ADFS v1, which does this type of thing I'm talking about for web only. And then ADFS v2, which is formerly called Geneva Server, is making it possible for the web service path, right? So now you can have, now you really have no excuse, if you will, where you would have to um, provision users across all the different applications and so forth or have the limitations of how Kerberos can be used this way. So, I mean, it really decouples more than anything the application from needing to care, though. That's the important thing. You know what? I want to believe it does, but when I listen to the details, I sound like I really need to care. You sound (laughs) like you need to care? Yeah, I sound like I need to care a lot. There's code involved. There's new administrative tools involved. There's a new server involved. Like, it sounds like I really need to care. Well, so I don't think anybody is saying that every single person that builds an application today has to use federated security. Um, I think that there will come a time when things are so seamless that maybe that will be what is happening. But I don't think today anybody's saying everyone needs federated security to be successful. It's, it is true, because I, if it did, they'd all be in big trouble. This is not that easy. Well, especially if they're talking to IT people like you. <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> She's like, you're yeah. beating me up here, Richard. So what you're saying is, if I can't convince you that it's useful as an IT person, which you are, then blah. Well, that's not, not true, <laughs> right? Not true. There's nothing but love in the room here. Let's be. Oh, no, I know that. It's all about the love here. Please. I do get the idea that I want more granular security and I want a lighter weight way to have outside people come into my systems and get decent authentication. So I'm interested Mm. in all that. But those are predicated on the fact that I need that in the first place. So maybe my question to you, dear Richard, would be, what is it about that scenario, which is so absolutely clear in my mind and looks like a beautiful thing, what is it that sounds so complicated about it? Ah, uh, what does sound so complicated about it? Yeah. When I put on my developer's hat, uh-huh. I dread the prospect of trying to speak security to the IT guy. Absolutely dread it. And so generally, and when I do, he generally tells me how it's going to be, which is role-based security. And so I'm right back to is in role. So I feel like as a developer, I have no ability to argue federated services at all. It's got to come from the architect. Uh-huh. But more than anything, I think it is that most IT folks aren't security experts either. And uh-huh. so they have a set of rules that have been handed to them by the, you know, Arthur Anderson's PWCs of the world, the analysts that said, this is how you're going to do security. Uh-huh. And so they're, the flexibility to move into this is so tough. I don't know who we should be advocating to, to try and make this happen. I'm pretty darn sure it's not the developer. Right. But here, think of it this way. Okay. So to that argument, if I'm an IT person and I go with Geneva Server, and uh, so basically ADFS v2, right? Right. And I install that instead of using, you know, as basically a, a complement, right, for AD to issue tokens. 
Yeah. Then let's say IT does say, look it, here's what you're going to get. Okay, yeah. I'm going to authenticate users here at this domain, and you're going to get a token that says what your username is and what your roles are in the system, in, in our domain. That's all I need, Richard. I don't need yeah. IT to do anything else. That they can, they can just do that. They can issue that token, and either my application can just work with those roles as, okay, so my application can say, I trust tokens from that IT domain. Let's call it the identity provider. Right. So I can just say, okay, if I get a token from that identity provider, I'm good to go. You're in. Now, what's your role? What, what are you allowed to do? Right? I can either go that route, or I can say, listen, I want to be able to allow people to access this application from more than one domain. So instead of having my application have to do an if-else statement that says, if you're in this domain, you need to have this role, and if you're in that domain, you need to have that role or this permission or that claim, then instead, let's do the following. Let's still tell the users to go authenticate to their domain, their Geneva servers, if you will, right? Yep. And let's send the token that comes from the Geneva server to our application security token service. Let's call it the relying party STS. And in there, we will transform the claims from the different domains into something meaningful to our application that says, okay, I know you are authenticated over there, and you have this role over there, therefore you get these claims. And you are authenticated over there, so you, with this role over there, get these claims. And at the end of the day, the claims are uniform across both of those domains, those sets of users. So our application can just focus on the application claims, and they don't know, they no longer care who was the identity provider that authenticated because they just need to know you got a token from our security token service that that trusted the the identity token that came from the other domains. Right. Okay. Now I think we're getting to the brass tacks here. Does that make you feel better? And if IT doesn't like it, they can bite me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You see, I like how you think, Carl. I knew I liked you. <laughs> but we bite are getting me. out of the brass tacks here now. If you don't like N- Federated secur- Security, you can bite me. You can bite me. <laughs> nice. Hey, should I? I'm doing a new column in ASP.NET Pro on Federated Security starting um, uh, the first issue will be December. Should I say, you got to love Federated Security or bite me? Or you can bite me. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Look, I really want to recap this, and then we'll get to the bad jokes, okay? (laughs) All right. So the upside to claims-based security for the developer is they only have to check a claim. They don't care about multiple authenticated domains. All that stuff goes away from them. If they use a relying party STS, yes. Right. As soon as we get into this requirement that we have multiple domains that are going to need to use this application, and that's going to make security really a headache, you make a strong case for claims-based security, and now you get IT involved in saying, all right, we're going to run this Geneva server and do this STS as well. But it is going to be IT's responsibility to now map the various domains that have roles that can have permission and what claims they get. Not necessarily. Not if the developers build their own security token service to do the mapping and the transformation. IT doesn't need to care about that because I'm building the app. I'm the one that needs the token from the different identity providers. And I'm the one that's going to say, you know what, I'll receive that token, but I'm going to send it to my security token service here with my database that knows how to map the claims based on the users over there. Right. So I own it then as the developer. 
if I have to do that, why would I bother? I mean, the whole point here is offloading that work. I want to be just check the one claim. Do you have right updated database? Good. I don't care what domain you're from, just that you have that claim. Yeah, but you're making it sound like it's a lot of work to receive a token from different identity providers and transform it. And there's actually even a template that you can use in Visual Studio today that builds a custom security token service that has a frame for all of this built in. So bite me. Yeah. Yeah, so bite me, okay? (laughs) To me, the real value there is pushing that task back to IT because it is a business practice, right? This could be an SLA here, that that domain over there has paying a fee to have access to this service. Mm. Here's how their authentication works. It's got to map out to this token. That's a good thing. Yeah, sure. So bite me. Hey, whatever makes you happy, Richard. That's all I have to say. Hey, you know what? I'm I tried to do a crazy thing this afternoon, Michelle. I tried to understand what the hell you were saying. And not too many people do. And uh, you know, you should talk to my husband when I say things like, "Oh, no, I don't." He'll say like, "Can can can we go? You know, here later today? Like, you're going to be done on time or whatever? What's on time to me? I mean, really." But yeah, anyway, and he'll say, "I'll be like, oh, I don't have the bandwidth for that." He's like, Michelle. Can you speak English? Like, don't say that in public. <laughs> don't use that word in public. I'm like, what? Bandwidth? Give me a break. Everybody knows bandwidth. He goes, um, who Who do you think knows bandwidth? Like, people don't talk like that. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Oh, man. He doesn't get it. Does he wake up in the morning and say, I feel a little jaundiced today? No, he doesn't. He leaves that at work. <laughs> That made no sense at all. (laughs) No, but you want to know something really funny? My husband tried to explain to me what cloud computing was the other day. Wow. Now, how does an internal medicine doctor, go figure, listen to an NPR program and come home and try to tell me, okay, you got to know when my husband starts talking, it's like a monologue anyway, so nobody gets a word in. But um, but, And Richard, you know. I mean, you guys met him. Anyway, uh, he's awesome. He is. So when he starts talking, he's like, uh, I could leave the room, walk out, go to the kitchen, come back. He's still talking. He thinks I'm right there. (laughs) 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 So he's like... Well, no, Michelle, you see, you see, the thing that's really good about cloud computing is, and he's like, yeah, I was listening. And I'm like, Michelle, I said, Andres, are you really going to tell me? <laughs> he goes, yeah, yeah, no, listen, seriously. So the thing that's really good is that, you know, it's like, you know, you can just like pay for, for what you use. I said, are you really telling me what the benefit of cloud computing yeah, like, is? Do you want me to tell you how to take care of that patient that you were having trouble with the other day? He goes, Michelle, I save lives. So the, the conversation ah, ends immediately. Ah, that's so. it. That's the end of the conversation. That's it a is. bite me right there. That's a bite me right yeah, there. Yeah, so bite me. All right. down. We're, it's joke time, Michelle. It's, a, it's been a tradition every time you're on the show to tell an off-color joke. So for ah. those of you who don't want to hear an off-color joke, there's no more content. <laughs> that's it. <There's, laughs> you can shut it off right now. All of the customers of Michelle should turn off now. Yeah, please, any customers, please just just go run, be free. <laughs> okay, let me think. Which one do I want to tell you first, or which one do I choose? Um, okay, I have a kind of not too dirty one, and then maybe some people get off, and I'll tell you the really bad one. Uh, just go right to the bad one. So um, there's these uh, 
there's these newlyweds, and they're in their honeymoon room. The groom decides to let the bride know where she stands right from the start of the marriage. (laughs) So he proceeds to take off his trousers, and he throws them at her, and he says, put those on. And the bride replies, I can't wear your trousers. He replies, and don't forget that. I'll always wear the pants in this family. Oh. (laughs) And then the bride says, oh, hmm. So she takes off her knickers. And she throws that at him with the same request. Try those on. And he says, I can't get into your knickers. And you never bloody will if you don't change your attitude. <laughs> <laughs> but I have a way better one. <laughs> <laughs> so this guy walks into it. I used to tell a guy walks into a bar joke. So now yeah. it's degraded to guy walks into the sperm bank. Oh. And he's uh, wearing a ski mask and holding a gun, and he goes up to the nurse, and he demands her to open up the bank vault, and she says, yes, but sir, it's just a sperm bank. (laughs) (laughs) I don't care. Open it now, he replies. So she opens the door of the vault, and inside are all the sperm samples, and the guy says, take one of those sperm samples and drink it. She looks at him, and she's like, but (laughs) they're sperm samples. (laughs) He goes, do it. Do it now. So the nurse sucks it back, and... And he's like, that one there, drink that one as well. (laughs) So she drinks the other one as well. And finally, after like four samples, he takes his ski mask off and says, you see, honey, it's not that hard. Oh, Oh, man. (laughs) That was bad. I know. Oh, my God. I know. That's just bad. That's awesome, though. (laughs) Anyway. And with that... We'll see you next time. Nice talking with you. On .NET Rocks. <laughs> Thank you, Michelle. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website, at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.